Today we into our third week of our series, um, which is called Saobona, really looking at the, the issues of diversity and prejudice. Now I'm sure some of you are wondering why this church would suddenly focus on an issue like prejudice or like diversity. Um, maybe you feel like this has never been a big deal before, so what's the big deal now? For many of you, perhaps you were like me and you grew up in a church where pretty much everybody was same culture, uh, same language mostly, and uh, same color, and that's how you encountered Jesus, and that's how you learned the Bible, that's how you grew in the faith, and it was wonderful. So what's wrong with that? Why is Westfall Baptist suddenly becoming so political, you know, so concerned about uh, being open to different people of different cultures and, and different, um, you know, people who are different in different ways. Is, I mean, is this really a big deal? Wasn't it just fine before? Is this supposed to be a big deal for Christians or is it not? Are we just trying to force fit all these sort of trends of the world and of the country now suddenly force them onto the Bible? It's a question, it's a real question. So I want to try and answer it um, first up in a couple of ways. First, if you grew up in a monocultural church or a single culture church, and that seemed to be just fine, I want to say that, well, that was just the reality of our country. Um, separate development, the separate development laws of apartheid in this country created single culture communities, monocultural communities. And we are still slowly, slowly undoing that legacy. That was simply the reality of our lives for many of us growing up. But the reality is changing. And it's not always easy for us that it's changing, but it is wonderful that it's changing. And it's wonderful because it's a sign of justice blossoming in this country like, I can see it's sort of like an opening flower, like a beautiful flower. And it's wonderful because, as, as I hope we're going to see today, this is exactly the way God intended His church to be. And then secondly, if, if like me, you grew up in a, in a single culture church and, and you encountered Jesus that way and that just seemed to be fine, well, kind of it's a natural thing to happen because human beings naturally mix with other people who look like them and share the same experiences as them and the same values as them. And since churches are voluntary associations, nobody is forced to come to church unless your parents force you. Maybe they do, did, I don't know. But <laughs> nobody's forced to come to church. People come voluntarily. So they will tend to go to a church and gather with others that are comfortable and easy to get along with. And that's usually going to be the case unless we are quite deliberate about making it different. Now, I would never say that your encounter with Jesus uh, was not real or was not valuable in a monocultural church. But I would say that it was missing something very important. And monoculturalism is not biblical, and it is not constructive. And at the times when the church has been most disconnected to the realities of its world, and sometimes even part of injustice, part of oppression, that is the times when the church has been most 
single culture, when it has not been able to bridge the, the boundaries of culture. But more than that, as we've... I always knew prejudice was an issue in the Bible. But as we've dug into it over the last few months, what's really, really struck me is how big of a deal this is in the New Testament. I realized that even with the kind of work I do and the kind of sort of orientation I have um, towards intercultural work, how much I'd missed of what the Bible has to say about justice, prejudice, and, and uh, multiculturalism. So, you know, as, as the church of, of Jesus began to grow and flourish and spread in the early centuries, earliest years, there were a couple of kind of big issues that arose in the church, and we see them coming out as, as headline issues in the New Testament. So we've got this issue of who is Jesus, Jesus' humanity, Jesus' divinity. We've got this issue of how do we get saved? Is it grace? Is it works? How does that work? We've got this promise, this expectation of the return of Jesus. We've got the the power, the person, the role of the Holy Spirit. That's another big theme. We've got practical problems which are being addressed, like sexual immorality and idolatry. These are big issues in the early church. We've got this big issue of our response to the poor. And then we've got a big issue, which is the problem of prejudice. And there are a few others as well. Now, I haven't seen any study that puts it exactly like that, but I think many years of reading the Bible, looking at the Bible, and maybe you, you've done the same as me, you... you Settle on a few things which you realize these are big deals here. Um, and the clash between Jesus' vision of a church made up of people of every nation and every tribe and every color and every language and our human reality of wanting together with people like us and being naturally prejudiced against people who are not like us is what gives rise, this clash between these two realities, is what gives rise actually to a large amount of the material that we find in the New Testament, the teachings of the New Testament. So we're going to dig into some of that today. We're going to look at the book of Acts. Now the book of Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament, and it's really about what happens after Jesus ascends into heaven. It's about how the church grows and flourishes for about 30 years from the time of Jesus' ascension for about 30 years on from there. And it gives us the history of what's going on, the challenges, the big themes, the main stories. And so we learn from the book of Acts that the very first church started on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. And it started with the gospel message being announced supernaturally in a multitude of different languages from all over the world. <laughs> Clue number one. That's how God launched the church. And that church grew very fast. Um, Acts tells us that 3,000 people were added on that first day. Mega church overnight, just to add people. Um, it grew very fast. It was very generous. It was very inclusive. Miracles were frequent. It was full of excitement. Now, from day one, the church and the leaders of the church were persecuted by the Jewish authorities, by the, the, the Pharisees, by the Sadducees. Um, but the first time we find internal tension in the church, Acts chapter 6, the internal tension revolves around prejudice. So, let's read that. It says, In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. 
So, so just to explain this to you. The church in Jerusalem, in that church, everybody was Jewish. Jewish by, by, by background. Um, still considered themselves Jewish. Uh, but there's two distinct groups of Jews. You've got the Hebraic Jews. Now, the Hebraic Jews are those who've grown up in Israel. Their home language is Hebrew or Aramaic, which is a dialect of Hebrew. And they would regard themselves as like the pure Jews. We speak the right language. We have the right culture. And then, because of the nature of the world, as it still is today, most of the Jews weren't living in Israel. They were scattered all over the world. And the dominant language and culture of that day was, was Greek, coming out of Alexander the Great's conquest of, of the Middle East, or really all the way from Europe to, to India. Um, and so for, for Jews that had grown up outside of, of Israel, their home language was most likely Greek. And they had adopted many of the Greek uh, cultural aspects. And some of them were now living in Jerusalem. Um, and the, we call them the Hellenistic Jews or the Grecian Jews. But the Hebrew-speaking Jews kind of regarded the Greek-speaking Jews as second-class Jews. Can you kind of get that picture? It wasn't racial prejudice. It was essentially culture, cultural prejudice. Um, it wasn't against uh, two different races. They were all from the same, the same group, but they held two slightly different cultures. And this um, prejudice, this tension arises in, this, in an issue around food. So every day the church is helping to feed the widows in the church. Now what happened in those days is if your husband died, if you were a widow, you had no social status, you couldn't own any property, and if you had no children to look after, you, you were destitute, you could starve. So the church collected food, people gave generously, they made sure everybody had food. Well, they tried to. But... What seemed to be going down is the Hebrew widows were getting more food because they were the first class ones. And the Greek-speaking widows were not. They were getting a bit less. At least that's the way the Greek-speaking ones saw it. So the apostles who are leading the church, the leaders of the church, are all Hebraic Jews. They're from there. They're Hebrew-speaking Jews. And they deal with this cultural prejudice that's going on by appointing a second tier of leadership, um, by diversifying their leadership. Um, and so we find this in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. It says, They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, who was a convert to Judaism. So they choose these men, and these are basically the first deacons that the church ever has. They're the first group of people who are in charge of administrative functions in the church. And the names of them are listed, and it's quite interesting. Um, they're listed for an important reason. They are all Greek names. They're all Greek names. In other words, they are all Greek-speaking Jews. So the Hebrew-speaking apostles deal wisely with this issue of prejudice by diversifying their leadership, and they include Greek-speaking Jews among their leadership. And by doing this, they avert a crisis, a split in the church. And they restore equity, equality in the church, and it says the church carries on flourishing as a result of that. But if we look at this church in Jerusalem, 
You had Greek-speaking Jews, Hebrew-speaking Jews, but they're all Jews, aren't they? The differences between these groups are pretty small. Um, so, in many ways, it was a monocultural church. Maybe, you know, with Zulu and Tosa together, or with English and Afrikaans together, but all look the same, just some language issues. Um, and as a result, it was large, and it was happy, and it was, it was friendly, it was successful, but it was stuck in Jerusalem. For years, there were no churches outside Jerusalem. They just stayed there doing their happy thing. And everything was fine. Why did it need to change? We're comfortable. We're encountering God. Well, it needed to change because God's plan was never only for Jews. And God's plan was never only to have a church there in Jerusalem. And so God allowed a huge uh, and violent persecution to, to come against the churches. Christians were killed. They were thrown into prison. Um, they were beaten. And so they scattered. Many of them fled from Jerusalem. And as they fled, they went to other cities, and as they did that, they told people about Jesus. And so everywhere, the gospel began to spread for the first time outside of Jerusalem. And that gave rise to a second uh, very important church that we find out, that we hear about in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 11, which is the church at Antioch. Um, Antioch's about 1,200 kilometers north, uh, sort of northwest of, of Jerusalem, and it's in modern-day Turkey. And if the Jerusalem church faced some little issues with prejudice and diversity, the Antioch church faced it on a whole new level. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 11, verse 19, and it says, Now those who'd been scattered by persecution traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews, only among people like us. Okay. Now, some of them, together with men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also. Wow. Wow. Telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them. These were brave guys, Sam, eh? crossing the cultural lines. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, the big main church, mother church, Maybe they were worried. I don't know. So they sent Barnabas to Antioch. He was one of their guys. And when he arrived um, and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Then Barnabas went to, look, went to Tarsus to look for Saul, who we also know as Paul. And if you know this history of Saul, uh, Paul, Saul was the guy who was persecuting the church. He was, he was the main guy, throwing them into prison. And then he had this dramatic encounter with Jesus, completely turned his life around, and nobody believed him except Barnabas. Barnabas was the first one who was brave enough to sort of go and see Paul and like, is this a trap? Am I going to be thrown into prison or not? And Barnabas had befriended Paul. And, and here we find that he goes to look for, for Paul. And it says... Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, or Paul. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And then an interesting little line. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. 
first time this word Christian was used was in this church, which was actually the very first church that was not a Jewish-only church, the very first multicultural church in the world. So we can, we can see that already, that um, Antioch was the first church where both Jews and Gentiles were mixed. It's the first multi, properly multicultural church. But there were more than two cultures in that church. And I want to read on a little bit. Acts chapter 13, two chapters on, tells us from verse 1. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So this is the leadership team of Antioch. And again, we have a list of names. Perhaps to us as modern Western people mostly, we look at it and we go, ah, oh, that's interesting, a list of names. But once again, the names tell us something really important about this church. So first we told about Barnabas. Now we already met Barnabas before. He's been, a, he's been an important guy in the story. And he's a Greek-speaking Jew. Greek-speaking Jew. Secondly, we told about Simeon, who's called Niger, which means black skin. Okay, so almost certainly, Simeon is a black African. Third, we told about Lucius from Cyrene. Now, Cyrene is in, in modern-day Libya, so he's also African. He's North African, probably lighter skin, but he has a Greek name. Um, so, probably North African with Greek influence. Libyan today, if you can picture that in your head. Then we've got Manaean. And Manaean is a Palestinian. Can you imagine? You know, with his turban. Okay, that's Manaean. He's a Palestinian. And he's a friend of King Herod. Very interesting. Now, the Jews hated King Herod. King Herod was an Edomite, which means he was from Jordan, modern-day Jordan. He's a Jordanian. So if you can picture a, the king of Israel being appointed by the Romans, the king of Israel is from Jordan. How's that going to go down? Okay, if you know your Middle Eastern. Okay, so nobody likes Herod. Everybody hates him. Manan is also Palestinian. He's also probably Jordanian, uh, uh, Jordan, and he's a friend of Herod. So he's from a completely different political persuasion. To the Jews. You got this. Okay? That's Manan. Then you've got Saul, or Paul. And Paul is a strict Hebraic Jew. I want you to imagine the black hat, the curly things, you know, the beard. In modern terms, that's Paul. In fact, he's a Pharisee. He comes from the Pharisees. He's trained by Gamaliel, who is probably the most famous ancient Jewish rabbi other than Jesus Top, top, top Hebraic Jew. So, you could not have asked for a more diverse leadership team in this church. In fact, it is quite astounding that these people could even talk to each other, let alone lead a successful church. But the power of this unity was so astounding, this racial, cultural, political diversity that it birthed the Christian movement across Asia and North Africa and Europe. And so the story carries on. Let me go to verse 2. It says, While they were worshipping this group of people, the Lord, while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And it says, After they'd fasted and prayed, I guess to find out what that work was, 
that they'd been called to. They placed their hands on them and they sent them off. And this was another first. This was the first time that any church had officially appointed and sent out any missionaries. They laid their hands on them. They said, go in the name of our church and plant churches. And that's what they did. Paul and Barnabas began to travel all around the Mediterranean region, preaching the gospel, planting churches, strengthening churches. We know of at least 14 churches they they started, but there may have been many others. Um, But more important than that group of churches that they started is the fact that those churches established other churches, and they established other churches, and they established other churches right up until today. And these churches that Paul and Barnabas went establishing throughout the Mediterranean area were established on the model of the Antioch church. They were deliberately diverse. They were deliberately missional. And so what happened in the years that followed is wave after wave of persecution came against the church. And the interesting thing is the original Jerusalem church, the largely monocultural, all Jewish, we think about ourselves, we love our big church in Jerusalem, that church vanished. And the churches that survived and thrived and grew were the churches that had been like Antioch, that were full of different kinds of people. And they were built on this principle of inclusive diversity and missionality, outward focus, and they continue to flourish and grow. I want to just read you three quotes from the early church, from the the ancient times, um, that speak to this kind of thing. So Justin Martyr, in about AD 150, one of the early church leaders said, We, who once took most pleasure in accumulating wealth and property for ourselves, now share with with everyone in need. We who hated and killed one another and would not associate with men of different tribes because of their different customs. Now, since the coming of Christ, live familiarly with them and pray for our enemies. How we have changed. How we live differently to the world. Then there's a, a letter which has survived from about AD 200 to a man named Diognetus. It's quite a long letter, and lots of interesting stuff, and it's largely about Christians and what they like. But in it we find these words. Christians love all men, but all men persecute them. They live in poverty, but enrich many. They suffer dishonor, but that is their glory. A blessing is their answer to abuse. The letter goes on to kind of conclude to say, we don't know why everybody persecutes them when they love everybody, but everybody does. And then also about AD 200, one of the church leaders, Tertullian, a well-known leader, wrote this. He said, Our care for the poor and our active love for each other have become our distinctive sign before the enemy. See, they say, the enemy being the empire, the, the emperor and those who were trying to crush the church at that time. See, they say, how they love one another and how ready they are to die for each other. This is in the context not of a church of people all the same, but people who will love and die for somebody of another race, another culture, from a different religious background. You know, Jesus himself said on the night before he died that people would know that we're his disciples by the love we have for each other. 
Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his disciples, take this message of the good news to people of every nation and baptize them all into my family. And a family, that family is pictured for us in Revelation chapter 7 as a multitude so vast that nobody can number it, people of every tribe and every tongue and every language. And so when, whenever we read the words of Paul in his different letters and he speaks about Jews and Gentiles and slave and free and people of different colors and different races, when he says things like, God has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. That's Ephesians 2. Or when he says, there is no longer Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Jesus. That's Galatians 3. Each time I'm sure that what comes out of the heart of Paul is this real and powerful experience that he had in the church at Antioch, where he saw practically people of diverse political and religious and racial backgrounds coming together in this incredible unity and the power of what came out of that church. And each time I think Paul reminds us that this is the core mark of the church, that no matter how difficult and how awkward it may be, how our natural prejudices will scream at us and the the comfortableness of monoculturalism will beckon us. The church of Jesus Christ is for everyone. It is and has been for 2,000 years a place of reconciliation, of seeing people, of understanding people, of loving people, of crossing boundaries. And that is its great testimony to a dark and divided world. May Westville Baptist be that kind of church. May the glory of God's presence be evident here as we take that road which is sometimes hard and is less traveled. It's the narrow way. It's the way of the kingdom of God that it's not about me. It's about Jesus' love for everybody. It's about reconciliation to God, and it's about reconciliation to people of every tribe and every tongue and every race. Won't you pray with me? Let's bow our heads. Worship team's going to.